Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right, today it is time once again for Cody Townsend and me to review the news related to the outdoors and the outdoor industry. And once again, we are discussing a number of big topics here, including wildfires and megafires and emerging technologies that are designed to combat climate change. We also talk about the prospects of Airbnb changing course and maybe getting back to its roots. We have a big conversation about outdoor industry athlete sponsorship programs and how and why the current model needs to be fixed. And along the way, Cody and I fight about coffee, and we also talk about what we're reading and watching, and sadly, what we aren't yet watching. Anyway, we cover all of that territory and even more, and so, let's get to it. Well, Cody Townsend, how are you today, and where are you today? I am currently in Lake Tahoe, California, and that how question is very kind of, I'd say, up in the air right now because there's a bit of panic to get the hell out of here, but then balancing whether how long you stay here for to make sure everything is good with your house and with your friends and neighbors and this whole basin as we watch the Caldora fire descend upon Tahoe Basin. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, it's definitely in a weird state right now uh, in terms of uh, the thing that is kind of we've been waiting for for a long time and we always knew it was going to happen is starting to happen. And, you know, as we speak, South Lake Tahoe um, is on fire. Um, this town seems like it's doing okay right now. Um, Myers and uh, Christmas Valley are firmly in the crosshairs of, of this fire. The fire is even on both sides of the towns, but somehow they're managing to protect the homes so far. So, but who knows? Today today is the big day. Today we have 40 to 50 mile an hour ridge winds coming in. And uh, uh, that's when things go haywire with these fires. So, so yeah, that's what, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of dominating my life right now is I would say uh, watching every map update of the fire and keeping close tabs on the wind because, you know, not only for my friends down in South Lake who were evacuated as of yesterday, but also for myself and my wife and my house to whether we evacuate at any at the drop of a hat. Yeah. And in fact, you know, we were trying to schedule like when we would record this conversation and you sent me a text this morning and I was actually really surprised to hear from you. You're like, let's and I should say we're recording this uh, Tuesday morning, August 31st. But I, was it yesterday when you're like, I don't know what my window is going to be this week because we are preparing to evacuate if need be. I mean, and meanwhile, yesterday, August 30th, we published this conversation on the Blister podcast with Scott Alert, who you put me in touch with, who is this developer in Truckee. And Scott and I talked quite a bit about megafires and forest management and what we need to be doing right now to mitigate some of this stuff. 
And I actually recorded that conversation on Saturday morning, I guess what, the 28th with Scott. And fires at that point were starting to creep up towards South Lake Tahoe. So this is all kind of feels like it's happening in very real time. And man, if anybody still feels like some of these issues, um, well, that we have time, it sure as hell feels like with the people I'm talking with, and I'm sure with you, like, nope, we don't have time. Like we need solutions right now and we need to act right now. Yeah. The un- the unfortunate side is in everything that I've learned and recently read and listened to as I've gone into deep dives on fire. Um, because, of course, you're like, well, this is happening in my backyard. And uh, over the last couple of years, I started learning a lot more about fire because I was genuinely curious in it. And there, the, the bad side is I there is no quick solution to this. And uh, which I want to say to like everyone out there, stop having bad takes on fires because uh, ultimately like this is an insanely complex issue that runs back hundreds of years. Um, everything that I've kind of learned about this and listened to like fire scientists, um, there's a great podcast called uh, Life with Fire by Amanda Monte. Um, and she's interviewing all people from different walks of life, whether they're firefighters themselves, fire scientists, all from different viewpoints, giving a really comprehensive look at like what is creating our current situation. And it is insanely complex. It seems like you're like, well, fire is just heat, oxygen, and fuel. You're like, yeah, but when it comes to these mega fires, there's a lot more going on. Um, for instance, like, you know, a lot of people are saying like, this is climate change. This is 100% climate change uh, caused. And it's totally not. It's uh a lot of the best scientists are like, yeah, 30 to 40% of the reason why they're uh, so big and happening so frequently is, is climate change. But a lot of it has to do with fire suppression policies, management issues that were that were started over 100 years ago that were, you know, started when the when essentially the Western U.S. was starting to get populated and we did not listen to the indigenous saying like, oh, no, we use fire to, you know, create a better land habitat and to, you know, mitigate uh, larger fires. And we were we said, ah, no, no, we're not doing that. We're just putting out all fires. So there's there's a lot of complexity to this. Um, I suggest people listen to podcasts like that read a book like megafire um understand this and like stop blaming individual politicians um stop blaming any sort of like government agency for their failure like this is like a failure that's been developing over a hundred years and so to me it's like uh one of the the best things i've read about it is unfortunately it's going to get worse before it gets better at this point because it's like we've let this problem get so far out of control so um yeah we i guess there there are things we can do to protect towns um and there's going to be a massive you know hopefully investment to make some changes but oh boy it's it's happening help me understand this first of all i cannot stand our current political climate of like, you you take the left side, I'll take the right, and then we'll just yell at each other. And I'll just say everything you do is stupid and you'll do the same about me. Like I cannot, this is in a, in a participatory democracy, this is 100% not the way we need to be operating. And so I understand certain issues are going to be extremely thorny where two sides 
might be able to both dig in and sort of have a bit of a reasonable perspective for their stance, and they don't want to budge. But when it comes to things like forest fire management, I do not understand why we can't come to a consensus about best practices. Why why can't we get there? And again, you know more about this issue than I do, but that seems like one area where we can go on fighting about whatever other handful of big issues. Why can't we get to consensus about best way forward when it comes how to mitigate megafires? Well, I actually, I think it's not because like any of the individuals have it wrong. I think it does get like politicians ends up taking takes on it. And then those takes are, you know, influenced by certain special interest groups or whatnot. And then we then we just were like, hey, my team member is saying this and my team member is saying this. So let's go. Because, um, yeah, it drives me crazy. But like, you know, we have uh, a climate denying congressman that represents our district, which, you know, seems wild. And like he's tweeting today about Afghanistan military being woke or, you know, the U.S. military being too woke instead of realizing his entire uh, district is on fire. And one of the most important towns in his district is about potentially burned to the ground today. Um, But like he will say something about fires that's like the environmentalists are not letting us log when you're like, no, that's like logging has actually been worse for this. And then vice versa. We got the other thing going like this is all climate change. You're like, no, it's not all climate change. I don't know. There's just there's something in our society that is fundamentally broken when it comes to a little bit of nuance and reading into something beyond the headline. And it's to me, I, I hope we can get aligned. And that's why I said what I said to start, like, just just go listen to podcasts, read a book, read some in-depth articles about this and realize like, hey, like we need smart people on this. We need the 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 fire scientists have devoted their life to this to be helping the government move forward with correct solutions. We need we need a populace that is educated to the fact that we need to fund the the National Forest Service. The you know like the USDA needs like a little bit of help when it comes to creating a, a forest management and like we need to like kind of just get together on this. But I, yeah, it's it sucks that everyone just starts yelling at each other and who's to blame. When you were saying stop with the bad takes, I, I want to just add to that, like, people, let's have nuance. And here's one pro tip. If you find yourself in a comment section throwing pejorative terms at sort of the other side, be like, shut up, Echo Warrior or whatever, I promise you, you're down the path to not doing anything productive. But but I also feel like like if... If I was president, first of all, no one should want that scenario ever, but I'd have at my disposal, I feel like I could tap certain people to be like, go find for me, I don't know, 10 or 12 of the premier mega fire experts, and then I'm going to lock them in a room for 48 hours and bring in like Taco Bell burritos, and I'll let you out in 48 hours, but what I want is a proposal for a clear path forward of best practices. And then we're going to implement that. Why can't I have this world, Cody? I mean, like literally 48 hours later, boom, this is what we're doing, people. Yeah, because then I think that that's where the 
that's where you'd be a very bad president and I'd be a very bad president because when it really comes to it, we're probably super naive to how it all really works <laughs> and that there's a lot more invested interest groups and there's probably just a lot more difficulty when it comes to it and things move really, really, really slowly. Um, you know, it's like we, we always talk about in business, there's like a nimble, quick, small business and oh, these corporations are like giant. They're like the Titanic. They move slowly and whatnot. And you're like, well, government are even bigger and they move incredibly slowly but uh but yeah so uh all in all definitely uh really fingers crossed that for today for south lake for for this basin because ultimately like you know the firefighters are out there like some of the videos i'm seeing from them god damn are they brave and just putting themselves in the middle of this and in some of the gnarliest work you could ever imagine and protecting other people's homes right now like the you know the fire has jumped across a neighborhood and there's firefighters in the middle of that protecting homes like so good on you guys uh we should pay you more that's something our congressman doesn't believe in here he wants to keep their pay low we should pay him a lot more and let's uh let's uh yeah work on better better takes and and better solutions for the future quick question before we move on you mentioned the book Megafire. Yeah. Does that book go into policy and best practices or is it more a history of how we got here? It's a little more history of how we got here. It does a little bit of politics. It's kind of like reads a little bit like a narrative, like it talks, you know, it's on the front lines with uh, with the firefighters. So it has that kind of like, ooh, uh, very gripping kind of feel to it and then it goes into it but no it, it, it doesn't so much that's where something like the podcast the life with fire podcast goes into it a little bit more but i am trying to look for a book about more about the actual policy and more like what's going on with the policy now because it's been pretty interesting to see that like you know there has been some federal policy changes when they're talking about if there's no uh, structures actually threatened, they're letting the fires burn um, by federal policy because we got to do fuel reduction. And the best way to get fuel reduction is through a fire. Um, but then they also just reverse that very recently. So I, I don't know exactly what's going on. Um, I don't know. It's the complexity of government um, dealing with something that is nuanced and complex in itself. So I, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, if anybody listening feels like you actually have a great book or article, a great resource on this, please send me an email. You can even DM us on Instagram or something, but I'd love to find something and be able to say like, again, I don't, I don't love pointing fingers. I like finding solutions and I, I just, it, this, this one befuddles me why we can't get clear on sort of best practices on this and why it has to be so divisive. And so if you know, send us the book or the article that spells out what you understand to be best practice. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, also on bad takes, um, I got to say, <laughs> oh, no. shots fired. What the hell, dude? Come on. I love this so, segue yeah, here is bad takes. Okay. All right. So uh, for all you listeners out there, there's a, a Gear 30 podcast about coffee, which I am definitely going to listen to. One, I've always said like Gear 30 is one of my favorite podcasts. And then two, it's about coffee, one of my favorite drinks in the world. And uh, yeah, so recently there was a coffee expert on there and and they started all taking pot shots at me because I drink dark roast coffee. And I want to say you had a very bad analogy 
because you, they said beer people, you know, like really good beer makers will like really pride themselves on making a pill, a really good Pilsner because it actually is pretty hard to make, which I agree. You know, these uh, cold brew lagers are very hard to break compared to, to uh, ales. But that is the same take of saying like skiers, you know, the best skiers in the world pride themselves on being able to ski ice really well. <laughs> because it's hard to do which is that same take so like but nobody actually wants to ski ice so to me like the light rose that was just a bad analogy because it's difficulty and nuance and like doesn't define necessarily how good or bad it really is or enjoyable it is so so I just want to say that that was a bad analogy. First of all, I stand by my analogy. The other, the other massive bit of hypocrisy on this is I, I compared dark roast to, to both hops, which you mentioned, and then hot sauce, right? Like yeah. one of the things you do with yeah. hot sauce is you dump hot sauce on like very mediocre food to make it less totally. mediocre. Fact is, I absolutely love hot sauce and put it on like everything. So I was waiting for for any of my friends to kind of call me out on that. But why this is a good analogy, Cody, is that dark roasts like hops and like hot sauce can be used to mask as a masking agent. So I agree. Hmm. Hmm. So who's got the I think you meant to say I, it was a great take of mine. No, the, you're saying it can be used, but the, here's the here's the thing. So just because you can use like a little darker roast to hide some imperfections in a bean doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be that's always worse than light roast. Because like personally, what I found with a lot of light roasts and like this is when I started my coffee education, like we you mentioned that we all had a like aha moment. And I remember when I was pretty young and Verve Coffee, which is now huge and it started as a tiny coffee shop in santa cruz in my neighborhood and they had a lot of light roasts and a lot of african single origins and it was like whoa but i ended up staying like learning i really like uh central american it's the uh, natural process is kind of something that i ended up liking and the light roast to me there was like so often there'd be a dominant flavor that was just like too much like quite often you would just get this very herbal note and it would just kind of like you take the entire coffee away to me and not get a little bit of extra complexity and like when it comes to dark roast i uh there's certain dark roasts like there's a coffee company out of Alaska that I used to really like, but it is that kind of, it's just so black. You can't really taste anything um, where I like, like a lot of Stumptown coffee has a really good roast to me, in my opinion, because it's dark enough where it gives like that depth of that, I don't know, that dark flavor I really enjoy. But you can still taste like a little bit of caramel, a little bit of apple or a little bit of blueberry or something like that. So, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not, that's why I just wanted to say that just because it's harder doesn't mean it's better. Just like skiing ice is harder, doesn't mean it's better. I will say for the record, I will drink the hell out of a good dark roast. But I do find that a lot of times, I'm, I'm, I'm either just drinking the wrong stuff, but I will find that like often I will be more dissatisfied with the dark roasts I'm drinking than if I just err on the side of skewing light roast that's my that's my take but yeah good dark roast i'm in 
bad dark roast, which might be the majority. I don't know. Or I'm drinking the wrong stuff. You can have it. I'll leave it all for you, Cody. Cool. I will say I am drinking instant right now, too. Like I had my very first cup in the morning of being like the a good mocha master. I have this uh, Ralph Baxter, an ex-pro snowboarder, has got a coffee shop. And he roasts his own beans and I make my good first cup. And then my second cup these days I've been starting with, I've got an Alpine Start uh, coffee with benefits. So it's got like coconut creamers and reishi mushrooms and all oh, that wow. stuff. So you're yeah, drinking f- yeah, that's fancy, f- fancy stuff, coffee, fancy, fancy. Fancy instant, but I I got a fancy instant. I got a, I got a, so I did like that. That was, it was interesting learning about that, but uh, everyone else can listen to that and separately and then have their own takes and uh, join me on the side that light roast isn't better because it's harder. All right. Mostly (laughs) I just wanted, all I care about really is standing by my dark roast analogies with hot sauce and hops because I I thought that was brilliant. But you can, you can decide. Yeah. You tell us if you think that was a bad take or not. That is correct. So, well, it's uh, where we going next. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, do we jump into the world of CO2 air capture technology, AKA direct air capture technology? Seems like a obvious segue after having a weird conversation about dark roast versus light roasts. This was an article published on the site. It's called Yale Environment 360 or e360.yale.edu. And I don't know, I'm just always kind of on the lookout for emerging technologies to help with our present climate situation. And while I am admittedly often deeply skeptical of these emerging technologies. I also think it's important to be up on them and doing our best to understand what might be potentially promising solutions. So I don't know, Cody, I don't have much of a take on this other than I think this is interesting. And we will link to this article. People can look at what is happening here and what it would take to make this a scalable technology. But I don't know, what did you think of this? Uh, I mean, it's kind of cool to see because everything I read about carbon capture technology has been very, it's like, this is going to be really, really hard to scale. Like they could have really successful experiments in a, uh, you know, small lab. And then they realize you're like, well, if we're going to scale this to actually create a solution for the entire world, the energy output just to make it happen is going to exceed what you're going to gain from it. So um, but so in that regard, this article is pretty exciting. My my whole thing is like I, you know, I, I try and stay up to date on what's going on with climate change solutions and whatnot. And to me, like it's going to take everything and we can't just focus on carbon reduction, because if we were to shut off fossil fuels tomorrow, as much as that's absolutely necessary, the world would collapse before our very eyes. And we we can't do that. So we do have to focus on things like carbon capture. And there's a lot of really, really cool technologies come about that. They're also, you know, there's a lot of environmentalists that are against uh, nuclear technology. There's a lot of new nuclear technology that is a lot safer and has less waste. We just no one should keep their mind locked on one solution to me. Um, And we need to kind of focus on all of them because they're all going to be necessary. And, you know, for instance, like carbon capture technologies, things that are kind of going to reverse carbon output in our world and reverse climate change. We can't rely on them as the magic bullet, but 
if we continue to invest this way, like we might be able to get ourselves and save ourselves from a lot of the worst uh, effects of climate change in the next 20, 30, 40 years. So I, I think it's cool. Um, I know I personally have a friend who's investing. He's a, a very wealthy investor and he's stopped investing in anything other than green technology. And he's got a whole portfolio of this kind of stuff. And it's I'm talking to him. It's really fascinating of what's kind of going on uh, on the background with uh, some of these startups that are they're doing some impressive work to try and figure out how to save the world. Um, it's cool to see like he's a very, very, very successful venture capitalist that has now shifted into he's like, all right, now let's take my wealth and try and create companies that will save the world. Check out that article, people. Let's find as many good potential solutions here. And um, and yeah, I just think as a community, we should be up on what's happening in this stuff. So we'll leave it at that. Where are we going next? Um, I'm going to jump. We got a lot of stuff we're talking about. So we're going to try to go a little quicker, but uh, I'm going to skip one and we can come back to it. I kind of wanted to talk about this because I think it's pretty uh, interesting for skiers and it's very ski and we're a ski podcast. But uh, it's an article from the the Colorado Sun um, and the Aspen Times. Uh, Aspen skiing can charge uphill skiers an uphill access fee for a service rules and decision that could have ripple effects. So this is pretty interesting because the uphill ski move movement, um, schemo racing, schemo for fitness, kind of just ski touring up on the on piste is becoming is importing itself from Europe into American culture. And uh, we're starting to see more and more people want to ski tour up the ski resort purely for exercise or just safety or or for whatever reason. I, I actually I don't know what the reason is because I don't do it. But <laughs> but but we're uh, but it's it's happening. And I think it's a cool thing. And so recently there was a kind of lawsuit and a ruling to saying that like that Aspen can charge us a fee to go ski tour up Aspen Ski Resort, which, yeah, is kind of is the first of its course, because usually we've always said that, like, yeah, if you're going to use a ski resort, it's using their chairlifts and that sort of infrastructure. And essentially this lawsuit and this ruling says that the um, the infrastructure extends to the groomed piece and to the avalanche controlled areas. And so I think it's completely reasonable. I, do I too. think they have fully within their right to charge because ultimately, like if I was going to be going skiing, touring up the ski resort, and I actually wish here they had, uh, you know, I wish some of our local areas opened to it. And hopefully there's going to be some pressure because I do think like it's a great way to get some exercise. It's a great way to get to learn to ski tour completely outside the bounds of any sort of avalanche uh, hazard. And if you're going in bounds, you're going for a reason that it's groomed and it's protected from avalanches. Whereas you're going out in the backcountry, you can access it, but then you have a lot of other hazards to deal with and or, you know, putting your own track in and navigating in the wilderness in the backcountry. So I, I'm personally, I don't know, it's something it's kind of weird to be siding with the, the company looking to charge skiers, but it makes sense. For the same reasons you've just cited, I mean, there are legit services being provided here. I, 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 would ju- I was to say too, like... It's also makes sense because like one, 
you can't just have people ski touring up in the middle of the night, early in the morning, or, or even during the middle of the day, having no idea where to go, what is safe, what is not. Like if you're touring early in the morning, there's cats, there's winch cats, there's snowmobiles zooming around. And if you're just ski touring up the middle of a piece, you might, you know, get taken out by a, a snowmobile or you put yourself in harm's way or stop someone from grooming. So it's like in a certain way, like looking at the charging with this like uh sunlight mountain resort charge 50 dollars for a season pass all that is is just like hey like just it's kind of a liability release and like tour on this slope uh, between these times and you're good so to me it's just kind of almost it was an excuse to like regulate more not in terms of a financial impact but more of an educational impact like these are the times and these are the slopes you're allowed to go ski tour up i agree that's a better take than your than your dark <laughs> Roast coffee take, Cody. So good good job there. Good recovery. Recovery. I've been killing it. <laughs> Where are we going next? Oh, um, let's go back to Airbnb since we've been talking we've been talking about this a lot. Yeah. And I gotta I, first I'll just I'll let you kind of talk about this article. I think you have more depth to it, but I I just want to say it's been really, really good to listen to your podcast with and the series you've been doing about that mountain housing crisis um it's been interesting to learn from multiple different people and their and their take their education on it and what they're doing about it um i suggest everyone go back in this feed and and listen to them because it is it is important it's sometimes like not the most exciting thing to listen to but it's like really important that we all understand and know what's going on in our mountain towns in order for them to to, to survive because like um as much as uh what was your uh your neighbor in cb what was his name again troy russ yeah troy russ as much as he talked like a politician throughout it i mean the one true thing he really really said was that it takes an engaged populace and an educated populace to actually make this stuff happen um because listening to him he was like continuing the conversation is almost the most important thing and having community dialogue is the most important thing well the only way we're going to have dialogue and uh, <laughs> with the community is if the community cares and knows what the hell they're talking about so so yeah good on you for doing this i've been finding it interesting um everyone else should listen to it as well but yeah back to this article what do you think yeah i mean my friend rob dickinson shout out to rob sent me this article the other day so this is an article that is published on medium through the entity survivingtomorrow.org and it's just called an open letter to airbnb and i really encourage people to check this out the author is jared a brock and it's laying out some possibilities for Airbnb moving forward. And for the sake of our conversation and piggybacking off of the conversations we've had in our Mountain Town Economics series about the affordable housing crisis, one of the most interesting proposals is that the author, Jared Brock, would love to see Airbnb going back to what was kind of its initial model, which had more to do with homeowners renting out a room or say a guest house to individuals coming into the community, right? But emphasis on where it started, which was people who already owned and lived in a house or in an apartment. This is not what Airbnb has evolved into, right? 
And hence, we're seeing people buying houses, which they are then converting into full-time short-term rentals, right? This is the issue that we're up against. Now, turns out Airbnb is now a publicly traded company with a like mandate to their stakeholders and shareholders to simply become as profitable as humanly possible. That's going to be in conflict with the ideas that I was just talking about. So I don't know, Cody, what's your what's your take on this? I mean, it, yeah, the the solutions that go through in this article being like very quickly of like start with transparency, um, you know, 8% of Airbnb hosts are renting a room in a single house, which was like the origin story of Airbnb. It was like, I can't afford my mortgage, so I'm going to rent out a room. And you're like, oh, that's actually sounds great. It's a way to create a little bit of wealth and you get a sacrifice and have someone in your house. Um you know, and then ensure all your hosts are owner occupiers only. So essentially now second homeowners renting out their whole house, limit the number of rentals to four, not, rental nights to 14 per year. Um, those are all well and good, but you're like, this is a publicly traded company. You think they're going to like, the shareholders are going to vote for anything that like lowers their profits, lowers their uh, hundred plus billion dollar valuation like no that's not gonna happen what i did find was interesting more is the stop suing democracies and stop bribing congress and that's where you're like yes they you know they airbnb having a hundred thousand plus court cases um for fighting against rulings that individual cities are having to regulate airbnb that sucks and but that's gonna you know that's something you're like how is a $100 billion corporation going to stop doing that? That's in their best interest. So these are when government has to come in to regulate and, um, you know, stop bribing Congress. Again, you know, these are the kind of things you're like, yeah, federal politicians aren't necessarily making rulings on this because eh, getting their campaign finance uh, a little funded through them. So this is, I think, it's just a reflection of kind of our society at this moment right now, um, you know, knowing that there's large, large, large companies that have an outsized power, um, Airbnb being one of them. Um, it was interesting, too. What I would say is for the rise against it, uh, the the pitchforks are coming for Airbnb and, you know, they really are. I I recently saw John John Florence, um, professional surfer, did a Airbnb advertisement or on his Instagram account, and people were ripping him. Um, our our industry, uh, people in our world don't like it. Um, in full transparency, I got approached by Airbnb um, as a sponsor of the fifty. Started going down that rabbit hole, and we kind of ended it. I realized at one point I was like, you know what? this just feels too greasy. And, you know, like it's one of these things you're like, yeah, like actually I, I don't necessarily like I, you know, Airbnb as a company, the, a lot of stuff they do, you're like, I don't agree with. Obviously there's things about their company that is positive, just like anything in the, in, in the world and any company, but I, I felt too greasy. So the, I would say the pitchforks in the outdoor industry and mountain towns have already come because to me, they, we blame potentially a little too much of our housing crisis on Airbnb, but we do, this is a problem that needs to be solved. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny, so many of our conversations end up where we are kind of talking about the big regulation work that's going to need to happen, or we'll put that in the macro class. But then we always end up also talking about like the micro 
which I would put on the sort of the individual and the local community. And, you know, I, I'm thinking back to past conversations we've had where I've kind of wanted to make the case for education at the individual level. And I remember I was saying, you know, it's like if you and I decided to go buy some rental property in Park City, Utah, and we were only doing that as a money-making venture, and we were never going to spend time there, and we didn't really give a shit about that community or that neighborhood, that's where I'm just saying, like, we do have the ability to be like, yeah, maybe let's not do that, right? And so while I agree with you, this will probably require regulation. What I actually like about this open letter to Airbnb is it is just like a letter to the founders being like, look, this is where you guys started and congrats on what you've built. But let's just get clear about what is good for communities and what actually might end up being good for your company. Because if everybody turns on you in a hard way, that's not great. You know, and again, do I think it will probably come down to regulation? Yes. Do I think it's impossible for the founders and board to say we're actually going to make some modifications to what we're doing? No, I don't think that's impossible. And then third, I do think that if if communities are like, that's not what we're about here, that might discourage, say, the hypothetical me and you to like just come in and say, I don't really care about this community, but we think we can make a buck here. But I do think there's a lot of people in another category who are like, I don't want to be viewed as the jerk who doesn't give a shit at all about a given locale. So help me understand what are the dynamics? What are the needs? What are the real problems? And I can kind of be on the side of the solution or be a part of the problem. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, continually educating, and you're doing a you're doing a good job trying to educate people. So um, I think uh, uh, again, just the more we know about this issue, the more we figure out what are actual solutions and where we're going to come out of this because it does seem it's pretty messy um, right now. So yeah, uh, I do. I agree. It was kind of like I liked the personal nature of that article of like kind of a direct letter to them. They're like, hey, this is how you started, and now you guys are your typical rich assholes and you've completely lost the plot so so yeah moving on the one topic that we haven't got into which was like the topic of of the month and we're you know reviewing the monthly news i think should be our shortest segment because it's much ado about nothing um but it was the the story that absolutely blew up about patagonia stop uh what stopping their sales to Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, which is their biggest account in that region, because the owner, one of the owners of Jackson Hole, hosted a fundraiser for very extremist right wing politician, you know, namely Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan, people that deny the the legitimacy of this last election. So Patagonia announced that hey, we're not going to sell the Jackson Hole because of that. So. I mean, the take is that's completely within their right and their freedom. And uh, it's always kind of annoying when this this shit blows up because you're like, yeah, that's what they can do. Like my own company, Arcade, we don't sell to certain uh, stores and doors because we just don't like them. 
you know, not for any like political reasons. It's like, man, they just don't really pay on time. So we're gonna, not going to sell to them. That's like that's the way our society works. You, you can pick and choose who you sell to. So private companies are allowed to do what they want to do as, as a proud registered independent. My, my only thing would be, I don't know. I'm just always like, okay, but Hey, Democrats don't get too comfortable with like, Hey, Patagonia is like pro Democrat. Cause like, I find both parties are capable of doing very dumb things or very, not just dumb, but just misguided things we'll say. So God bless those of you who can feel about either the Republican party or the democratic party. Like this is my team. They are always in the right. I just can't find myself capable of instilling that kind of trust in either of those two parties for what it's worth. That's all I'm going to add. Not that anybody needed to hear that, but. Well, and actually I don't even, I don't even think it has to do necessarily with exact political parties like Patagonia, like they're dealing, doing business with probably with companies that they don't necessarily hundred percent agree Agreed. with. This is Agreed. just over the line. Like this is like, you're like, you're dealing with Marjorie Taylor green who says things like, you know, Jewish space lasers are starting fires in California. You're like, okay, yeah, that is, com- that's not political party anymore. Like Patagonia definitely sells to Republicans. Like there's Tucker Carlson had a massive rant about Patagonia and then side by side, people were posting pictures of him in Patagonia vests. Like, but Patagonia staying true to their values. What they outline is like, okay, this is too far. They were like, yeah, don't want to do business with with Jackson Hole, um, specifically because their owner is making money off this. Jackson Hole, I will say, like as a company, it's interesting. They're doing a lot of positive environmental stuff. Um, so it's a it's a bummer for them. You can tell they got caught in the middle of this because it's their owner, and they're like, Jesus Christ. So, anyways, um, yeah, we've probably already gone on too long about this, but but that, I guess maybe this maybe this just answered my own question because I had it in our notes is like why do you know, big media tends to amplify political divisions. And um, but uh, maybe I just answer that because it's just so easy to talk about because it's so like, what the hell? Every each side is always kind of like surprised by it, uh, about the about it being a big issue. So, yeah, I mean, media is there to get clicks and one one side rises up and cheers and the other side, you know, rises up to shake their fist. And you're going to get that reaction every single time whereas i'm just more skeptical of the sides (laughs) (laughs) so anyway but yeah private companies do what you want to do now this is a little uh, a subject that is more about private people doing whatever the hell they want to do and if they're within their rights of it so uh one story again we'll kind of go quick through this but uh this is our blevin corners segment a tribute to jason blevins our um uh colorado son he has an article about bolt wars on pike's peak and essentially it goes into uh this article about how on pike's peak uh there's this kind of very i would say guarded yeah it's a guarded climbing zone um not super popular but has been kind of well known among like hardcore climbers in colorado for a long time um uh a certain individual going up there and writing a guidebook about this and then two climbers 
because of this guidebook going out and chopping a lot of the bolts that were dri uh, drilled into the rock for safety reasons, them chopping it in protest of the guidebook and in protest of this guy who is developing some of these routes by drilling bolts into the rock. Um, so pretty much this falls under the bolt wars category. And bolt wars have been going on for 40 years in climbing. Um, they continue to not go away. And it's this continual um, argument that will always define progress versus tradition um, between what is the line where our recreation has too much of an impact and who is the decider of this. Um, this is something like I've really div dove in on this subject because I think this subject is coming to skiing, the, the terms of impact on wild land through recreation. Where is the line where it's too crowded, um, where we might actually have some impact on the on the the land itself? And where are those zones where you can get away from it all, um, you know, ski in a more, I guess, traditional backcountry way where you're just kind of away from everybody and exploring like how do we reserve zones for that how do we reserve zones that are more approachable and going out there um had like these questions we've talked about on this podcast a lot and i still have yet to have an answer for because it's such a damn gray area and i i don't know what this is going to you know come to i know that these bolt wars again are not being solved no one knows what's happening with them and i will say the only thing we have to be really really focused on as as skiers and outdoorsmen and outdoors women is that we have to be making these decisions as a community because whenever this blows up and situations like this make news the government tends to come in and the national forest service comes in or the park service comes in and they just shut it down because it's just a much ado about nothing. They hear about people chopping bolts. They hear about unsafe practices. They hear about like these minor culture wars between two competing groups. And instead of like trying to be nuanced, they're just like, no, we're just going to stop it because you guys are all acting like idiots. So that's all I say is we, we got to do a better job at self-regulating ourselves. So what do you mean by that in terms of self-regulating? Are you talking about, say, the climbing community in Tahoe coming together and saying, we are going to finish this. Like at this particular crag, you are welcome to bolt or these people will be designated bolters, but you're not allowed to add anything else. Like what, what do you imagine this looks like? Yeah, I imagine it looks looks like small community organizations. So in Tahoe, um, what's recently started was the Tahoe Backcountry Alliance. And this alliance of backcountry skiers has come to advocate for backcountry skiing access and for issues like uh, Caltrans plowing out shoulders in backcountry ski zones so that people can park and go backcountry skiing. So these community advocacy groups for a region as small as just the Tahoe Basin are really, really important to, you know, guiding one, the, the community to educating the community and also to working with local officials, local governments, um, local services and businesses to, you know, create 
a, a good relationship, um, both with the land and with the government. So um, the same is said in this this instance. Like to me, what you're what I'm reading about in this issue is one individual wanting to create a guidebook and create safety. Um, so that's why he's drilling bolts. And two individuals saying that is not our tradition. This is what this zone on Pikes Peak is meant to be and has always been. And we don't want progress. Both people are right. Both parties are right. But ultimately, what it what it has to come down to is a community organization for, let's say, it's like Pikes Peak Climbing Association or whatever it is, guiding this and saying like, hey, like you two people uh, chopping bolts, you are completely wrong. Like you are not representative of what this place is supposed to be. You guys are vandalizing, you know, uh, the, the rock that. Or, or it's the exact opposite. Hey, now, traditionally, we want to keep this without bolts. We want to keep this this way. There's plenty of other places with bolts. Let's go there. So I personally think like forming local community advocacy groups is really, really important because um, it's the, the best way to, to kind of represent, uh, to coalesce around the community's needs and desires um, for outdoor recreation and to interact with local and federal governments. This is a recurring theme now in our conversations. We're back onto the importance of like local participation and sort of consensus. Like we're back into like local consensus ought to win, sounds like we're saying. So you get people together, the 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 climbers in Pikes Peak, tell people to show up. And let's hear the different opinions, make the cases, and then effectively there's a local vote to say, as a community, here's what the majority, I guess we're going to, thinks should be done. Because you're not going to get 100% agreement. So I think we're back to kind of consensus and local participation. It seems like that's what we're talking about when it comes to what we should do about affordable housing and to cut bolts or not to cut bolts and the like so yeah and i would say this always brings me to a point where when you live in, in mountain towns there's always this local versus tourist or i grew up here and you moved here um i grew here you flew here those kind of divides and to me it's never been about like hey i went to school here i'm a local and you just moved here you're never a local to me like what defines being a local is how much you give to your community, how much you participate in it, how much you act in its nature. And you could live your whole life and are just like, take, 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 and never do anything for your local community and people that come in and integrate them with local advocacy groups, integrate them with local governments, that those are the people that are, that are locals. So um, this that's where, you know, I will say like when I bought my first home was the first time I really truly felt like you're like, okay, I, I'm going to show up to local government meetings that are impactful towards this because I'm now completely invested in this community for, according to my mortgage, 30 years. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but so, yeah, like, again, I think, uh, you know, if you've got issues um, with your area, Either join local community organizations or or start local community organizations. It's the best way to kind of get your issues in front of people and create progress the way you want to see it. Next topic. This is a big one. Might kind of hit close to home for some people on this podcast. 
Yeah, let's let's give this. Uh, we can give this a little bit of time. We're almost an hour in. So, uh, but uh, yeah, this one was this one I found interesting, and I, I don't see much writing about this. Um, but this was an outside business journal. Athlete sponsorship programs are broken. Here's how we can fix them. Um, there's a lot of interesting takes, and one of them kind of you know the central part of this thesis was the fact that there was a guy Horst Eidenmuller, a law professor at the University of Oxford, was a kind of studying hidden pressures athletes face. Um, and he like conducted interviews with 40 sponsored athletes across a range of sports and started talking to them about kind of their jobs and how much money they they make and the, the system and how it works. And uh, his conclusion was these contracts are unbalanced sponsors. Let me be blunt. They are ripping off the athletes, which was pretty interesting to to hear. Um, he goes on in the article that uh, the trouble is athletes are easy prey. Um, they're more passionate about their sports than they're about money and let that lets brands get away with paying them on average 5000 to 20000 a year. So that was one part of it was kind of this financial realization that one, athletes are incredibly important to to um, to companies and outdoor companies and that they're vastly underpaid for what they actually do um which probably to outsiders they're like you're probably looking at this like oh shut up you guys have dream jobs but when it really comes down to the value that you provide there's potential for underpayment it's the same argument that people look at nfl football players and be like oh my god they make so much damn money why are they complaining about it you're like yeah because their boss is making 10 times as much money off of you know, their three year career that they're able to make money. And the same goes with our careers. Like I've been lucky to have a long career, but it's generally pretty short. There's still a time, still a timeline well below before retirement age that I'm willing to have as an athlete. So uh, pretty interesting. That first part of it. Um, I'm going to have to say, I completely agree with it. The article is very well done and talks about average salaries and the stated range is between five and twenty thousand dollars a year. So again, I think as you know, you just said, Cody, it's like if people are like, Oh, you guys should shut up, you're living the dream or whatever, it's like, okay, but dreams can be tough to live on for five to twenty grand a year. Then couple that with what kind of return is being generated for these companies. Now, not by all athletes, right? To be clear, it's not like the return is going to be the same when if we're talking about the you know a broad cross section of athletes but there can it seems be a more just way to look at i mean to get very corporate return on investment right and i don't want to say let me be devil's advocate here but let's talk about that fact you know, so if we're if we're taking a cross section of a hundred different athletes across skiing, mountain biking, climbing, et cetera, on the one hand, couldn't you argue, well, if the companies are like, well, show show us what you've done. As an athlete, Cody, how have you navigated or looked at that issue if that's come up? Like, okay, so you want to be paid more. We're putting the onus on the athletes here, which maybe we shouldn't. But again, let's play this out. Show us what you've done. Show us that you are, you know, generating X number of dollars or, you know, this percentage of value for the company. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's really, really hard to do to show 
an ROI on what an athlete does. Um, but I will say like one of the things that fascinated me early on with being a professional skier was like, wait, how do you make money? Like how, how the hell do you just ski good and people give money? And no, that's not the case at all. Uh, there are a lot of pro skiers that still believe that. But no, there has to be some sort of value. It can be direct money like, oh, I'm selling this much product. It can also be just strictly brand awareness. Like X brand has never been heard of before and so-and-so is wearing it. Does that return you know, investment? Who knows? It's really hard to say. Um, the vice versa, it can also be just branding. Like you can be like, you know, you have a team of very underground rock and roll guys and girls that are badass and heavy, and that's how you want to brand your, your, your company. So that's why the kind of people you get. So there's very, very different goals that an individual can have as an athlete you're supposed to look back at that and figure out am i achieving those goals for this company if i'm achieving what i did what i'm supposed to do can i do through this sport that i do and love deliver some sort of value um i feel like i've been lucky enough to figure out ways to to do that um i do a lot of work on the back end to to try and show like hey like this is what i've been doing for your brand um because it's the only way that i can continue to make a living at this um i will say like we're talking about this oh athletes are underpaid it's kind of hard to talk from my standpoint i've been very lucky in my career i make more money than i've ever thought i could at this i'm actually like 10 years past where i thought my ski career <laughs> would have lasted um and a lot of that is on account that i've worked really hard on the back end business side of it but looking at the next generations, looking at what's coming next, that's where I look at this article as being very, very on point because I'm watching people not getting paid anything. Like just like I have athletes that are in movies that are recognizable, have large followings, making $20,000 a year from five or six sponsors. And to me, what it like, it's kind of this thing that it's like, don't feel bad for the athletes, but like you, you companies are acting really stupid because you can make a lot of money off of what an athlete does, how he inspires people, how they go out there and advocate for certain things, how essentially we promote this sport as a whole. And if you're not investing in that, then it's only going to bite you in the ass later down in the road. Um, and that's where the second part of this article was kind of the most fascinating to me. Um, and it's something I've witnessed in the ski industry is that, and something I'm trying to advocate for quietly in the back end is that there's no mentorship programs for the next generations of athletes. Um, I've watched certain sponsors go from 10 years ago, having junior teams out the wazoo, uh, having like 50 sponsored athletes across North America, and then being able to come pull from that field to see then who rises to the top. I was a part of that. I was a junior sponsored athlete when I was 15 years old by Solomon. Um, I was able to rise through that ranks. I've watched a lot of other companies completely end that. Because I was young, I was able to go in there, meet people like Chris Davenport, meet people like Shane McConkey, meet people like Scott Gaffney, JT. I mean, a lot of that had to do with being squad, but a lot of it had to be like with with Mike Douglas and Chris Davenport is because I was on Solomon and it was early on in my career. Those guys mentored me. They were like, hey, you want to do this? 
do it this way. You want to, you got to do it like this. This is what it means to be a professional athlete truly, because it's not just how good you ski. It's everything behind the scenes. Um, and so seeing that kind of junior program starting to dry up really concerns me for the future, because like what I'm looking at is like the people that were at the top of the sport 20 years ago are still at the top of the sport and we need a new generation to lead the sport. Um, we need obviously more diversity. We need more voices. We need more impacts. We need, we need to be funding and, uh, developing that because that's going to be the futures of these sports. And they're going to have a lot different takes, ideas, interpretations of sports and wildlands that I do. And we need to figure out how to continually invest in that so that we move forward as a you know as the athletes are kind of the leaders the spokespeople they're the people out in front of outdoor sports so making sure the right people are out there is really important in my opinion a couple things to touch on in addition to that one of the things the article talks about which i am really in favor of and i'm curious to get your take is talking about maybe not just treating athletes like employees but actually making athletes employees and I'll say this, you've said several times, like you've been lucky in your career, but one of the things I know about you, and we talked about this, like when we did that speaker series conversation at Western, we went a bit more in depth about this because I think this is really important is I was trying to get you to talk more about what we're now calling the back end work. And like, I know how much of that you do. And I will say personally, I don't have a lot of time for a skier or a climber or a mountain bike or whatever who thinks I'm really good at that one activity and that should be enough. Pay me. That is not the world we live in. And if that's you, I don't think a company should be paying you more than 5,000 bucks. You know, that is just not the world we live in. And I am okay with, say, the new economic realities or that let's say the new expectations like for what it means to be a quote-unquote athlete so that said you know i think the people who are doing it at a high level and having success they aren't just skiing and filming sick lines there's a lot more to it than that and you know i think when we start adding in like okay so what else is there well, at that point, you do actually look like an employee, right? And there's a, a multiple different verticals and you are doing multiple different tasks, right? Which is to say like the most successful athletes actually really are just functioning as employees. And so I have seen this as a bit of a trend where I'm seeing and I can think of a handful of athletes who actually are employees of the company and they are serving in multiple roles in addition to being sick athletes, right? I also think that's really helpful in that let's say there is the bad accident where you are no longer able to ski or ride at the highest level. Well, if you've been trained and are playing an important operational role in the company, Turns out that might be a good thing. Like you've shown like, well, we still need you in this other capacity. So I don't know. What's your what's your take about that? Maybe what I'm proposing might mean that we can't have the same number of people as quote unquote athletes. 
I don't know, but it might mean that, okay, so we're not going to be able to make employees out of, I don't know, whatever, pick a number, a hundred thousand folks, but we'll be treating, I don't know, is it 20,000 folks in a much better way? Sorry, I'll stop with the brainstorm, but what do you, what do you think about that model? I knew, I've heard this model popping up more and more um, of athletes actually signing on as employees, meaning they get health benefits. They've get up they're, they're no longer 1099, which is how we as athletes, I'm a complete independent contractor. I have my own business and everything I do is separate. I'm a, a contractor. Um, so my business responsibilities are entirely up to myself. So bringing people in house. Yeah, it's an interesting model. I would say, you know, like hearing about some of the stuff early on with Red Bull as an athlete was really interesting. They were like, hey, we're giving you health insurance and we're going to also provide you real rehabilitation services if you get injured. You're like, oh, wow, that's that's novel. Whereas like, you know, you you look at prior athletes that have had career altering injuries and it's just like, oh, dang. Bye. And that sucks. Um, you know, it's one of the things like this article goes into Andrew Alexander King um, and some of the stuff he's fighting for as an athlete, especially him as a uh, as a black man working within the industry of saying like, hey, like your this contract says you can use my name, like and images forever. And he's fighting against that, saying, like, no, you can use it for the year that we're signed on a contract, which is, makes perfect sense. And, like, I've tried to advocate for that same thing. That is, like, he's pushing back on something that is very, very logical. It's like, if you pay me for 2021, that's when you can use my name, like, an image to promote your brand. You can't use it for the rest of your life. I've, dude, one of the, the craziest things in every single one of my contracts has a clause that says if I get hurt and I'm no longer able to perform my sport, they can pay you pro rata and enter uh, cancel your contract. So if I've got a three year contract, I'm one month into it and I break my femur or become paralyzed, they can just pull my contract and say like, "Ooh, we'll pay you for one month. So you can't do your job anymore. And that seems like, OK, makes sense. You know, if you're not able to show up to work, we're not going to pay you. But it also, in all the contracts, defines what an athlete is, being that you are at the top of the sport. You are doing things that no other person can do. You are, like, progressing the sport and the, the skiing. And you're like, these are two very, very contradictory things. Because if you're saying, like, I, as an athlete, need to be on the top of the sport, then there with that comes an inherent risk that I might not be able to do this sport. And that's where it's like unfair to the companies just absolving themselves of all that risk. And that's where I'm like, you, we need to remove contract clauses like that because you're just like, you're putting every ounce of risk, whether that's like obviously permanent physical disability risk and financial risk on the athlete. And meanwhile, big companies like, sorry, bye. And that's where you're like, come on, guys. Like there is some stuff where where companies are exploiting these athletes. And I think what he goes into into this is going how this is actually affecting the diversity of the sport pretty heavily. Yeah. And by the way, we just got done talking like five minutes ago about this whole you need to be like at the very top of your sport. We just got done saying that's not how it's actually working right now. Because if that's the language of the contract, cool. Then I'm not going to be, you know, posting on social and providing all this product feedback. I'm just an athlete. 
I just am going to take care of myself, make sure I'm in optimal physical health, right? Like the most successful athletes these days, or many of them, are acting like employees and fulfilling a number of different roles. So if the language of the contract then is like, if you ain't at the top of your sport, you're out. It's like, well, wait a minute. There's a disconnect between what is currently being sort of expected, if not put into the contract language of like, because I just got done saying, if all you are is a good skier, I'm actually not interested in you. But you just got done saying, but the language of the contracts is actually that, be the sickest skier. So we've got a disconnect here. Yeah, no, I, I just think overall, like, if you're listening to this, I know it could sound you're on the outside. And again, looking at this being like, oh, cry me a river. Athletes, you guys got dream jobs. Like, but more than anything, what I think it comes back to is just this fact that you're like, hey, like, people aren't necessarily getting paid their value. And this goes for across a lot of jobs in our world. This is goes up for a lot of things that I think are becoming uh, into light these days of, you know, what is an essential worker and how much should they be paid for that essential job? Um, they are putting themselves in risk during COVID to, you know, bag your groceries for you. So what is that of actual value to our society? This goes back into it like, Athletes are valuable to brands. They're very, very valuable, and they're not necessarily being paid as such. And what I I am saying, like, I feel comfortable with what I make. I, I love my job, love my life. It's given me a lot. But what I'm really concerned on is this next generation, is the people that are going to be advocating for these sports, the outdoors, for different cultures, different diverse backgrounds, different voices. That's where I'm going to see it going to get tougher and tougher because in my time as a skier i've watched salaries go from the, the golden era when simon dumont tanner hall yoon olsen were making almost a million dollars a year so now the the highest number is maybe a quarter million and that's for one or two people and most of the pro skiers that i know most of the pro climbers most of the pro athletes are making maybe fifty thousand a year for do doing this and that value doesn't match what these companies are making off of it so that's kind of the ultimate thesis for for this article i would say and again shout out to my friend andrew alexander king he's referenced multiple times in this article andrew has been kind of pioneering i think getting to these changes and he's still fighting that fight and you know he and i talk about this quite a bit so Anyway, shout out to Andrew and let's see, we've had Andrew on two blister podcasts and one gear 30. You can find those easily if you're interested in hearing more from him. These are important topics for all the reasons you said, Cody. And uh, I guess final question is how optimistic or hopeful are you that we might see some significant changes? Semi. I mean, there's there's parts of me that have have seen the industry being run by a very old uh, guard with the exact same viewpoints on the world. Um, and then there's a part of me that is seeing companies that are truly interested in this and facing it head on and doing the right thing. So I, I'm quasi like i've watched deteriorating salaries for athletes and ambassadors and advocates continually go down in my career um which is a bad sign um even though 
the outdoor industry has grown massively. But at the same time, I do see other companies kind of starting to change the way, I, way they act, the way they fund their junior programs, the way that they're, uh, they're outreach to uh, in terms of diversity and reaching out to new athletes and new perspectives. So I'm, 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 I'm saying I'm like 50-50 right now. It could go either way. Um, and I mean, all I'll say is the companies out there that if you don't face this head on, it is actually going to be as a bad business effect for you in the future. That's that's ultimately because this article is proving that athletes are very valuable to to these companies. And if you're not investing in them, it's be probably going to go the way of the dinosaur. I think we've made it to our final segment where we talk about book recommendations, by which I mean media recommendations. I just still don't like the term media recommendations. <laughs> I don't help us here. Like, give me the are they just recommendate art recommendations? That sounds too pretentious. I don't know. I don't know yeah, what we're doing. Yeah. What have you been reading or watching or listening to, Cody? Well, I mean, half the books I've been reading, I'm probably of no value to talking about, but like one of them that I'm reading is called Bringing Up Bebe by Pamela Druckerman. And the reason I'm reading it is because I'm going to be a father soon. So half the books I'm reading these days are all about raising babies and raising children so of not much use to our listeners unless you're two months out from having a kid like i am <laughs> so i mean i'm in that world but uh this book has actually been recommended to be a ton of people and it is really interesting and it's a kind of uh it kind of pits the way americans raise their kids versus the way the french raise their kids and um it's more or less it's not saying like oh french kids are all perfect and great and american kids are all shitty and horrible it's almost using him as like devices that would have been a better title by the way french kids are great american kids are shitty and horrible (laughs) totally it's like you know it's like the everybody poops of our generation as french kids are good american kids suck but um it's a really interesting book i would just say it's a really it's been recommended by a ton of people and it's not that kind of book that's like uh like do this do exactly that. It's more kind of like, hey, this is how you should think about it. Like, think about that babies are actually really, really intelligent. You can train them. Like, they are they are sponges and they are absorbing tons of information. And so you can actually train them. Don't just like think of them as little blobs that are screaming and shitting and puking and eating like they are learning at by the second so um really interesting book i've i've actually and really enjoyed it um the main book that's more pertinent to this podcast i read uh see you tomorrow by jeremy evans that is a book about marco sifariti um sifredi i don't know exactly how to pronounce his last name but um uh, born and raised chamonix french snowboarder that passed away in 2002 um i forget the exact date um up on uh mount everest he was trying to ride the north face the hornbein coulard dropped in on it and disappeared and nobody has heard seen found his body anything but uh so kind of a, a biography about about marco which was which was pretty interesting i would say the story of marco is worth reading um because he was a groundbreaking snowboarder was doing he'd already ridden the north face the the norton kular on uh becoming the first snowboarder to ever ride it cleanly um he was doing descents in chamonix that have you know 
is like a second descent. No one's done the third yet or some first descents that are still have yet to be repeated. He was just unbelievable for his time. And uh, unfortunately, he met an early demise. So that story was was interesting. The book itself little i felt like it needed some editing i felt like it needed some some uh, more cohesion um but uh but overall if you're like interested in kind of ski and snowboard mountaineering chamonix it's, it's a decent book by the way do you have a due date are you talking about a due date also related question am i allowed to say when is elise due or do i have to say like when are you and elise due like what what are what is our language what is the acceptable language these days when it comes to asking about babies being born? I have no idea. I don't. I'm my wife's pregnant. I still don't know because I personally say I wouldn't be like when someone asks me, when are you due? I'm like, I'm not due. I'm not, I'm not due. My wife is due. I don't get any credit for like the pain <laughs> and event that is about <laughs> to be inflicted. Oh, it, it goes worse than that. I would say the pain, it starts pretty early. Like you, you at least is starting to do the walk around kind of like the, you know, you got your hand on your lower back and like standing up slowly and using your knee to get up. Like it's oof, uh, carrying a 10 to 15 pound bowling ball on your stomach at all times is not easy and uh i've been doing my best i've given her lots and lots of massages been uh trying to do my best to comfort her because yeah it's that's it's gnarly what women go through for pregnancy yeah it's a you know i think guys we always like oh you can't drink for nine months yeah <laughs> you should try try being in pain for like six months and being like uh yeah so uh due date we're end of october so we got uh, um a little bit of time end of october it, i mean it's yeah, coming it's coming you better yeah. read that book about crappy american I'm kids I'm versus like... awesome french kids you better hurry up and finish that thing yeah, totally. No, I'm I'm reading a I'm binge book reading baby kids books because there's like no manual. Like they you pop a kid out and then you just bring it home, and then it's it's yours. And you're responsible for it for the rest of its life. Like there's no they don't they're like yeah they don't come home. You you got to be up to yourself to read the manual. So I'm doing as much binge drink reading as I can on it. Did you actually? That was a Freudian slip. You just said binge drinking. Yeah, binge drinking, yes. No. Binge, uh, that's, binge yeah. reading. <laughs> okay. Maybe a little bit of both. No, binge reading. I've I've been doing no, I've been doing the exact opposite of binge drinking. I've been Okay. I've been on 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 Lisa's level lately. So just just keeping it to the fancy instant. Fancy instant coffee. Okay. Yeah. Lots of coffee. So um what have you been reading or watching? This is really embarrassing. I'm still working my way through Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep. I have actually, I have been trying harder than ever in my life to get a better handle on this sleep thing and like create like more of a discipline around it. This is ironic timing, given that you and Elise are about to have a kid where your sleep life is about to just get decimated. So I'm still reading this book. I think it's really good. It's kind of well documented at this point. I mean, the last 11 years with Blister has been mostly about like not sleeping and figuring out how I'm still alive, but I'm really trying to get a handle on this. I do think sleep is really important. Last night was just, I was an utter catastrophe and like was definitely awake, like at 3am 
until like 7 a.m. and doing all the things you're not supposed to do, which is like I'm remembering like I need to reply to this person and then was writing certain things and then reading several articles. And I was like, okay, you just, you are like an F. You get an F when it comes to sleep. And I'm really trying to get to like, you know, B, B plus. Um, I will say, I got to say, and this is, this sucks to hear, and I don't want to like accuse you of anything and sound like a, like one of those people, but I've done it too, is uh, stop drinking coffee and stop drinking whiskey and okay. it'll help a lot. Because when I've done that, when I've stopped drinking like coffee or like limited my intake, because I can't say I've ever stopped it, but just have like a half a cup first thing in the morning and then have zero to drink at night, I sleep a lot better and like when you start tracking your sleep with like i don't know the whoop straps or heart rate monitors or anything like that it really shows pretty quickly um that's 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 one of the things i usually go through phases of like i just don't drink anything for like two three months for no other reason than i'm just kind of like eh, i don't want to have a drink and then it just kind of becomes normal and generally i sleep very good during that but then i'm also like not a puritan and i also like having a good whiskey and like having a good beer here and there so like occasionally i'm gonna do it because i don't want to live my whole life based on the fact that like oh i'm sleeping better I'm like well i also want to have a good cocktail because damn it's nice that's one thing this sounds so sad again i've already confessed i'm like an f i'm like a <laughs> grade f failing when it comes to this <laughs> totally the big the big thing i've done which which matthew walker recommends is stop drinking coffee nine or ten hours before you go to bed and so i have yeah. implemented what i'm trying to do is get myself like okay we're gonna go to bed by midnight which for me is actually like two to three hours earlier than like left to my own devices type of schedule. So I'm shutting down coffee intake by 2 p.m. And I've been doing that, though I've still definitely been sneaking in like most of my daily pot of coffee. It's just I have to hurry up and like consume it. Yeah, by two. So you need to drink coffee like I do, which when I got, was at your house, drank like half you your pot in like 10 minutes. You drank coffee faster so, like, than anyone I've ever seen drink coffee, literally. Yeah, totally. That was amazing. And, uh, I, I actually, I have that habit. I stopped drinking coffee after noon. I don't drink coffee. And it's because of pretty much the same issues I realized. I was like, oh, I don't sleep if I do that. And I can, I, I limit myself to like, once it's noon, I'm like, no more coffee. And so I think I'll keep, maybe try to wean down from 2 p.m., I can then work that down to like noon. I don't like the sound of any of this, but I, I do like the sound of sleeping better. So, yeah. okay. But yeah, you are the fastest coffee drinker I've ever seen. Yeah. So you you hold that title. It's technique. You know, just get all my caffeine and just like direct mainline inject into myself. And then you're like, cool, I can stop. I got my eight to nine hours before I sleep. I'm perfect. But it's so nice. Like the taste, especially if you drink light roast, you know, if you have good taste in coffee, Cody, and then you're just sipping it through the work day. It's, it's I'm not, I'm not. We don't record for the video <laughs> the kid, on this, but this kids. is me holding up my middle finger at you. <laughs> yeah, so. that's true, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Moving on. Oh, TV. Well, yeah, TV. Um, well, wait, I, I have one last oh, quick. This will okay. be quick. This is another sort of confession. I also feel very much like I get a personal grade F for this. I have somehow never read John Steinbeck's East of Eden. Yeah, neither have I. God, 
That is weird because I love Steinbeck. Yeah, I'm like, what are you even doing? Like, you kind of call yourself somebody who, like, I don't know, reads books and stuff. I have officially started reading East of Eden. Yeah, it turns out, like, if I've, you know, spent most of the time in sort of Steinbeck's shorter stuff, it's great. I'm happy to be reading this book. I'm going to just leave it at that right now. Mostly, I just needed to confess to people, I've never somehow read East of Eden. I, I'm in the same boat. I actually am ashamed of that. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll get back to you if, if it's like, hey, you really have to read this like right now. Unbelievable opening chapter, I will say. And uh, yeah, I'm enjoying this so far. Speaking of me telling you about things that you have to do, because you've been a massive disappointment. Turns out not not just to me. I know, to our, our listeners too. The listeners are now yelling at me, telling me I need to watch Friday Night Lights. Yeah, so I, I got this email. I received this email in the last week or two from Daniel Colet, and I'd love to just read this email in full. Daniel, who lives in Talent, Oregon, Hey, Jonathan, always love your and Cody's conversations. Such a great idea for a show. I'm writing regarding probably the most important segment, media recommendations or book recommendations or whatever. My initial question is if Cody ever watched Friday Night Lights. Seriously, he's got to get on this. Cody. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not it's not anything purposeful. I guess I like keep forgetting about it, even though you've like drilled drilled it into my brain. There's some cognitive block for every time I think about a new show. Um so yeah, I'm sorry I'm sorry. I gotta doubt it's it's on Netflix, is it? It's on Netflix now. Okay, cool. You're Perfect. literally wearing can... a 49ers hat. I know. Well, so this is the other problem. So when we were gonna go into TV and media recommendations, yeah. I will say like this time of year. I don't watch much TV because my wife and I watch a lot of sports. Like every base Giants baseball game is on our TV. And now that it's football season, I've been watching. I've watched every preseason Niners game so far because I'm obsessed with it. We have on our list Hard Knocks. Love Hard Knocks. We Elise and I both watch that because it's sports. It's football. We've been watching. Uh, you know, there's the Olympics last month. There's for Formula One races that we didn't even watch the the latest one. We haven't recorded. So uh, this time of year, like I start to watch way too many sports in my like like right now i like i unfortunately i should have slipped in friday night lights not secession but i got hope by succession and i kind of like i just i'm now halfway through season two and the show just got way even better that show was really good it's great you're trying to get out of me yelling at you by bringing up <laughs> secession which i love um yeah. i don't like where the, i don't like that turn for, furthermore, I've been on you about Friday Night Lights for well over a year. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, like two years. So this whole thing of like, oh, the time of the year all of a sudden, I'm like, that's not an excuse. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> just watch the freaking show. And, and it will break my heart if you and Elise, it'll actually break my heart more if Elise is not in on it, to be honest. Yeah, okay. But yeah. like, if you guys aren't in on it, it will break my heart. But I still want, I need an answer. Okay. Okay. Probably still not going to watch it. 
<laughs> all right. Wait, okay. Moving on. You're a major disappointment to all of us when it comes to yes, Friday Night Lights, I, Cody. To our listeners, to our to our hosts. Yes, I'm just a disappointment. to all of us. I've, my coffee choices just, I know. just getting. It's, yeah. just, it's been rough. It's been rough <laughs> knowing you. Daniel's email goes on. And I, I also wanted to ask about this. He says, after giving you shit about not watching Friday Night Lights, tell Cody to watch the better version of Yellowstone which you had mentioned, I think maybe in our last conversation, like you watched, uh, you'd watch Yellowstone, you weren't that into it. Daniel is saying you need to watch Longmire. They are only compared because they are both Westerns, but Longmire is a crime drama with a hero, well, multiple heroes. It also does a way better job of portraying Native Americans, definitely worth a watch. Plus, it's produced by the same people who produced Friday Night Lights. Mm, gotcha. So that means he probably will never watch this. You'll notice the in-show music is kind of similar. Cosmic guitar playing and a couple of the same actors are also in it. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for the awesome podcast, Daniel. So first of all, thanks, Daniel, for the email. Cody, have you seen Longmire? No, I never even heard of it, actually. So I, I just looked it up because I you sent that email along. And, yeah, it seems pretty interesting. I mean, that was the, the disappointing thing about Yellowstone was like the the showrunner has a couple of some of the like best movies in that kind of genre, like Hell or High Water, I think, is a masterpiece. It's great. And he did that. He also did Sicario, which is Ooh, unreal. Great. Yeah. And so you expect Yellowstone to be like, oh, if it's anywhere near Hell and High Water or Sicario, this is going to be amazing. So and that's where it was almost so disappointing with Yellowstone is how much it's not. So uh, maybe, yeah, give a well, I'm OK. I'm not going to give Longmire a try because I'm supposed to try Friday Night Lights. And then, well, maybe I will. Maybe I will just kind of continue this uh, charade and just keep saying I'm going to watch it and be like, sorry, I'm in season six of Longmire now because a reader recommended it. I, I will say since this email came in, I have watched the first two episodes of Longmire. So I'm I'm giving it a shot. I don't know. I can't. I can't. It's not one of those where I'm like, oh my god, episode one blew me away so much. Like I'm completely hooked. But uh, I, I I wanted to investigate, and so I'm I'm two episodes in. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with this for a bit. We'll see if I ever catch that. You know, when the wave comes, where you're like, okay, I'm now fully in, and you the show's got me. Yeah. So Longmire, are we allowed to talk about Secession for just a second here, since you brought it up? Sure. I, I would like to talk about it. First of all, are you watching this with Elise? Are you, is this like uh, a- No, this has been a solo thing. Um, just because I I forget. It was like solo travels or whatnot. So I just downloaded on my iPad and started watching it. And you're half, you're, you're five episodes in on season two? I think like six episodes in on season two because I just watched episode five, which I thought was one of the best episodes of TV I've watched in a really long time. Um, which that was which where- is that? That is the episode where the the Roys fly to the uh, was it Page? No, oh, the 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 retreat of the the news company they're trying to buy. Why am I forgetting the oh, name? Oh yeah, um, when they go to stay with them for the weekend as they're trying to court them to uh, to to buying them. That episode, like this, is some of the, what I love about really good TV. So like, there's these notions where it's obviously like. 
the you know Waystar Royco is like conservative. It's kind of a playoff Fox News, and then um, the other media organization is like it's almost like the video version of the New York Times or like someone with institutional knowledge and are important for democracy. But both families running this are insanely wealthy, and they both suck. And like, you know, the little notion where she the the non the matriarchs of, of it says like to the housemaid, like, oh, have a cocktail with us while she's like serving them food and knows while she has to go make the meal for them and then comes out with the turkey like she cooked it. And the, the lady kind of the housekeeper comes out behind like, no, I did that. Like these subtle things in TV and, and film, I think, are so good. And I thought that episode was so, so, so well done. So, um, yeah, that's where I, you know, I think it, the secession is like it's a slow starting thing and um, episode or it's no starting TV series because it's like it's just character development through the entire thing. It's not reliant on shit happening like and then this happened and then this happened it's more just like this slow festering character development that i i I find fascinating it's also weird because these are these are often really icky people yeah somehow you, you you leave episodes feeling like you need a shower sometimes but yeah it is really well executed and i think you're doing a good job of talking because sometimes I'm like god why do I like this show this is like kind of a litmus test of like I think that's a sign I'm a terrible person which is what I thought at first about what I was a little bit hard getting into it because I kind of thought I was like is this just like a a real housewives of Orange County but in a more dramatic well done form like because it feels like that you're like am I just watching shitty people do shitty things and then you know you start to see like no it's actually a really good character introspection into the way that individual wealth affects multiple people and they do and they do a really good job i feel like of of i don't know yeah it is generally shitty people but like how psychologically it's impacting each person and why that then has an impact on greater society like the fact that romulus romeo like is like just so messed up in the head because he's the just pretty much traumatized little kid with no love in his life and you see why he acts the way he does and creates a corporate culture the way it is and why like a company could pretty much have his viewpoints spreading out to the whole world because the way his father treated him so that's where it's kind of fascinating in my opinion that was such a good answer i'm now slightly less mad at you okay thank you for not having watched friday night lights but that's incredibly well said so we should, we should probably end really quickly on this high yeah, note you've hit. Totally. I do not want to say anything more after that. I feel so good. <laughs> well, per usual, we've covered a whole lot of ground here, mixed in some ridiculous stuff with some incredibly important stuff. And uh, I guess we can say that's kind of what's gone down in August. Yeah, I would say I got to get going because I'm going to keep packing my house, my important things. I will say it's a very interesting exercise going through your stuff and realize what what you don't mind burning up and what you definitely don't want burning up. I would say it's pretty interesting because you only need about 10% of your stuff. And you'd be like, eh, whatever. Um, so going through that right now and um, yeah, I got to get I got to kind of get moving because we're going to drive to my parents' house and get out of the smoke and uh, get out of any sort of way if this fire does take a pretty nasty turn. 
Well, to you and everybody else in the area, I guess we'll say, yeah, man, be safe. Yeah. Yeah. This one goes out to all the firefighters out there fighting us right now because, yeah, oof, you guys are working your ass off and aren't paid enough for doing what you're doing. So thank you. I'll talk to you soon, Cody. See you, Jonathan. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And if you are enjoying these conversations, then please let us know by leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. In fact, Cody told me that if you do leave a rating or review, he will name his newborn baby after you. I mean, he said he'd probably need to check with Elise first, but he thought that she'd probably be cool with it. So yeah, please take a minute to leave us that rating or review in Apple Podcasts. Now, I also want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourselves and everybody else. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Off the Couch podcast, where we have a fantastic conversation with one of the absolute legends of the world of ultra running, Dean Carnassus. So yeah, check that out. Subscribe to Off the Couch if you haven't already. And then we'll talk to you over there tomorrow. Take care, everybody.